We are, yeah, we are in Isaiah 11, as I've just read this morning, and uh, we're looking at the righteous branch. And, say, and we, like I said, and like has been said, uh, this whole liturgy that, that Ray and the band have led us through so far, uh, we are in the time of Advent. So we're singing the Christmas songs, ramping up toward the receiving of, of our Lord as um, born, born as one of us to set us free. And Advent, as I said last week, and I'll continue to say, Advent is Latin for arrival, and so it's a, celebra- it's a preparation, not just a celebration of his arrival and a looking back, but a preparation of our hearts and our full selves for his having come, but then also for the fact that he's reigning now, but he's coming again. So we're in the in-between place. We're in these last days where there is that sense of longing still. Lord, you've started the process of making all things new, but there's so much brokenness inside of us, in our lives, in this world. Help us to be part of that restoration, but also help us to know it's okay to mourn. It's okay to mourn, and even in the middle of Advent, because that's why you came to be our comforter. Um, and so, this is this is the time between those two arrivals. We're in Isaiah. We've always been in a gospel during the time of Advent, but right now we're in Isaiah because, as I said last week, the the early church fathers, a lot of them, would refer to Isaiah, who came 700 years before Jesus, as the fifth gospel, because he's so prophesying about Jesus. He's so full. Of, of Jesus and, and, and pointing us ahead to the coming Messiah. He's mentioned, Isaiah is mentioned a lot of times obliquely, but mentioned over 600 times in the short 27 books of the New Testament that we have. So the question I want to ask, and, and you could see, hopefully, even as I read briefly this passage from Isaiah 11, how saturated with Christ. This is all about the coming Messiah, the righteous branch. What is he going to look like? As, as I preach and as um, I read it, I, I as I preach, I want you to think about, and I want to think about together, how does this passage, think about it 700 years before Jesus, written to and given to the Jewish people, um, how does it develop the expectations of the Messiah who's going to come and save us, and who, the, God, the King who's going to reign over us? What is he going to be like? What is he going to be like? So that's what this, that, that's what this is about. Um, I want you to, so I've been talking for a bit, I want to just pause, slow down. I want you to close your eyes. If you, if you feel uncomfortable in your first time, you're like, why is this pastor making me close my eyes? You don't have to close your eyes. It's okay. But close your eyes with me and use your imagination for a second. Imagine that you're hiking along, let's say, the West Coast. Let's just pick something. The West Coast, perhaps a ele- ele- little elevated in the mountains, and you are just surrounded by massive, you come into sort of a, a single track trail where the epic views kind of dissipate a little bit, and you're, all of a sudden these huge trees start to surround you. And since we're on the West Coast, let's go redwoods. Massive redwoods. Some of them is big enough to drive a car through if there's a hole in the middle of them. Massive redwoods, huge, let's say cedars, towering uh, oaks that spread their branches out. Um, and in your hiking and in your wanderings, you almost stumble across, and in fact, perhaps you do stumble across a stump just a stump, and that's the, really almost the only reason you recognize it, because you've really just tripped across it. In the midst of all these massive trees, you come across this stump, and it seems like it's dead, but you notice out of the stump, there's a shoot. There's a little shoot of green and new life. Okay, you can open up your eyes if you had them closed. Um, that is the picture that Isaiah gives us here, this righteous branch in chapter 11 of this apparently unimpressive Shoot, that's point one, okay, the shoot, the shoot. And that's, that's what he starts with is the Messiah, how, what is he going to look like when he comes? Well, let me tell you what he's going to look like. He's going to look like not the cedars, not the redwoods, not the oaks, but something that you will probably miss and you might even 
hey, you might even stumble over it. Um, but it's going to be something that appears that it's dead, the line of David. But Jesse, David came from Jesse, and so you'll notice that Isaiah both begins and ends the passage talking about the stump or the root of Jesse. And so David came from Jesse, from the line of David, the line that, that Israel was looking to to produce its messianic king. Um, through the exile, through the disobedience of that line and of the kings of Judah, the southern tribe, it, that line looked like a dead stump that nothing was going to grow out of. But Isaiah says, from that seemingly dead stump, there's going to come a little shoot, a little green growth. And that green growth is the hope of the nations, okay? So let's look at, just first of all, the shoot. First thing is verse 1. It's going to come forth from a stump, and it's going to be initially unimpressive. We, we think immediately of Isaiah farther on in the prophet. He writes in Isaiah 53, he says, this Messiah is going to be like a root out of dry ground. Like if you're in a parched land and you just, boom, you stumble over, not even a stump, but a little root that's protruding from the ground like a finger. That's going to be what this Messiah, who's going to save He's going to restart everything and save creation and be our way to be reconciled with the Father. That's what he's going to look like, something you trip over if you didn't watch where you're going. And it's, and it's surprising for all the obvious reasons, but especially in, in this context where if you go to Isaiah 10, the chapter before this, Isaiah is talking about the Assyrian Empire. And he's talking about how God's going to use them and how God's going to judge them. And the Assyrian Empire, they were a massive massive empire that just destroyed nation states and gobbled. They, they end up gobbling up, at this point they had, they gobbled up the 10 northern tribes of Israel and they had just assimilated them and basically genocidally destroyed them. So we never really see from, hear from them again. They become the Samaritans later, a remnant of a people. And, and so the Assyrian Empire were the bad boys of the Middle Eastern scene and they, everywhere they went was just destruction. And you can read in other literature about the terrifying things they would do to, to conquered peoples, okay? Um, and so in comparison to these massive cedars and oaks and redwoods of, of nations, this Messiah is, you, it's, you're gonna, it's super, super easy to miss him. It's surprising that he's this unnoticeable, okay? So he comes from the stump of David's line. It looks dead, but it's not dead. And so we know that Messiah is gonna come from David. Um, a couple of lessons here, just in pausing. First, God's work that he's doing in the world to change the world among the impressive things of this world often is something that we'd miss if we're not paying attention. It often looks unimpressive, at least at first. If we don't get this down into and ask the Lord to get this truth down into our hearts and into our heads, especially in a culture that is maybe more impressed by flash and glitz and the obviously impressive than any other culture on the face of the planet, we're going to miss not only what God's doing often, but we might even miss God himself. Because when God did come, they missed him. Most people missed him. And they missed him so bad that they ended up nailing him to a wooden tree called a cross, a Roman cross. Um, so, and I, I just... That can extrapolate, right? Like the way, the way that we are called to um, see the world change for Christ is largely through making disciples. How does that happen? Often we, we want it to happen in coliseums and in ways that are seemingly really impressive, but often it just happens by, and it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen, if you're not doing this, then it's not gonna happen at all. One by one, one on two, one on three, life on life, sharing yourself 
in Christ with others and walking along with them and building them up in Christ and spending time with them years and then saying, now you do the same, pass that on. It looks unimpressive, but we've talked in past sermons about that multiplication effect and how when we pour our lives out to other people in small groups, um, that's how our Lord did it. It's the master plan of evangelism. He chose 12 men and spent all of his ministry basically with them while ministering to the masses and the crowds, but the main payoff was those 12 men, and they went and saw the world change through the power of Christ, and so we are called to do the same. So in discipleship, um, we have our parish families and communities, but within those, we're starting to encourage you to get into smaller groups where you can hold each other accountable, confess sins, study the word, really get deeply into prayer and share life and be known. We're calling those anchor groups, groups of two to five max, preferably three to four, where you can see this happen. Very unimpressive, very essential, very essential. Discipling folks, sometimes the person you're discipling might not be a believer, might be a baby Christian, might be mature, but you're walking along with one another, pouring Christ out, sharpening each other, and then after a year or two saying, okay, now you're sending each other out and going, go get some others and do, do likewise. Unimpressive, but world-changing. Um, and if we miss that, we miss what God's doing. Okay, so I want to encourage you in that. Uh, another application, just the PLI Christmas event, I said I'd mention it uh, from the pulpit, but this is, again, this is right in line. What we're going to do to reach out, to spend time with, to love on, to begin to build relationships with literally refugees and immigrants, the nations, those that are on the ragged edges of society. This is right in line with this text and with what actually Messiah came as, as a refugee. As a refugee. Um, and if it, this is just like the balls on the tee and the bats in the hands, and we just get to swing here. Um, and so getting to do this event and serve these folks and begin to engage in relationship with them is... Um, just such an opportunity that's right in the center of this text, which I think you'll see as I continue to preach and finish. Um, but I want to encourage you to come and avail yourself of that. Um, in a lot of ways, it's just a branch sticking out of a, an unimpressive stump, but it's, it's a, God's going to use it to, to change things and to change this environment and to change us. So I want to encourage you in that. Also, just by way of encouragement from the stump and the, and the shoot that grows out, um, God is often at work when it seems, not in only unimpressive ways, but it, when it seems like all hope is lost. When all you see is a stump, when you think that, um, that this is done with, there's nothing, there's nothing more to be seen here, um, it's going to take a miracle. Well, God's in the business of, of miracles. He's in, the, he's in the business of taking a stump that looks dead and changing creation through it. That's what he's done through Messiah. It's what he continues to do through his people because of Messiah. So I want to encourage you, um, you know, through this stump, grew a branch that grows up into a garden, as we'll see, that will replenish and is replenishing and regrowing and restoring the entire creation. So God can do it. He's doing it even now in you, in his people, in your situations. I want to encourage you to take hope. This is the same God. This is our Messiah. So um, that's point one. The shoot, um, I have a, sorry, I, 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 I um, preempted my point one there. I have a few more things from point one that we need to look at, and then we'll, and then we'll move to point two, okay? Um, so that's the first thing is that it, the shoot is apparently unimpressive, but if you look at verses three and four, he's also perceptive and obedient, this righteous branch. Verse three um, says that, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by what his eyes see. And that right there recalls 1 Samuel 16, 
when God says to go, he says to Samuel, go and anoint my future king, King David. And, and Jesse lines up all of his impressive seven sons. And seven is the number for completion in the Bible. So we really think that's it. It's all seven sons. And Samuel's like, God has said that none of these are the chosen king. Surely this is it. Surely you haven't left out anyone. And Jesse's like, oh, there is the runt. There's the small guy. He's out in the fields. I didn't even think he was worth bringing here. And he brings him in, the eighth son, David, and that's the king. That's the one who's anointed to be king. And God tells Samuel something that's unforgettable. He says, Samuel's kind of reeling, you know, from this guy, you're anointing this guy. He's not impressive at all. And God says, I don't see as man sees. Man sees the outward stuff. Man sees the appearance, but I look at the heart. And that's exactly what we're told this branch does. He, does, he sees with God's eyes. He sees not the surface, but the core. Um, he hears in the same way. He doesn't judge on first impressions or what he first hears. He's not deceived by appearances. He weighs, he's wise, he perceives the truth and he's not reactionary. Um, and so we're gonna get more into that in a second. But he, he sees with God's eyes and he hears with God's ears. It's the opposite of Adam and Eve. It's the opposite of Adam and Eve. Eve uh, saw, she, was, she knew God's word, but she disregarded it in favor of the word from the serpent and in favor of what she saw and she was seduced by that. And this, and, and all creation cracked underneath her and underneath Adam as he stood there silent and complicit, knowing full well what was happening. The branch is opposite this and he, and he, and he should be opposite this. He stands as someone who's going to obey God and through his obedience, he's going to, he's going to undo the, the curse and he's gonna bring the pro, begin the process of renewing all things out from under the curse. Um, so the fear of God moves him in verses two and three. It's either, by the way, take a step back for a second, it's either the fear of man that's gonna move you, wanting to impress others, or the fear of God. That's it, there's no third, is it tertium quid? There's no third way. There is no third way, and, and so often I want there to be because I so struggle with the fear of man, um, but there is no third way. We are either going to fear God or fear man, and this righteous branch, he fears God, and he has God's eyes, and he has God's ears. Um, and the ears are the organ of obedience in the scriptures. So he hears God and then he obeys God. And I feel like in our congregation right now, there's been a real press from God into the ears and into obeying what we hear and what we know. Not in necessarily in learning more stuff. We need to learn more about the living God, but we need to do what he's telling us to do. And so this righteous branch, he does that. Um, and we have been told that we have the mind of Christ and this, this branch, and so we have his eyes, we have his ears, but we need to pause, unplug, listen for what he's saying, know what he's saying through his word, weigh it in community, and obey. Um, so that's, that's that. He, he has God's ears, he has God's eyes. Um, and Jesus, what did he say? What, did, what is it? He said in the scriptures, in the gospels, he said, I only do what I see my father doing. And I only... Uh, and I only say what I hear my father saying. And so Jesus shows us that he is this one with the eyes and ears and heart of the father. And so we have, we have Christ in us. And so learning as a people, and Justin was talking about trying to practice this more and more himself, and we talk about this a lot, but being a people of the word who hear him and who, know, and who obey, but also who have his eyes, who, who are plugged in by the power of the Holy Spirit looking at Christ through his word in community throughout our day, knowing that he's in us by his spirit and asking him, what are you doing, Father? Help me to do it. I wanna be your hands and feet. What are you saying? 
I want to, I want to be your mouthpiece. And so, and so learning to walk in that. Um, there's a great three-volume, kind of two-volume. He didn't end up, he wrote notes for the third, but there's a multi-volume biography of Winston Churchill that I love and that I, it was my first Churchill biography, my entree into the, the world of Churchill long ago by William Manchester. And I, I remembered it. I couldn't, I couldn't find it, but I think it's from Manchester um, on Churchill during the Second World War. Someone said that Winston Churchill was a rare complex, a cocktail or a blend of two extremes almost never found at once in the same person. He was both tender and ferocious. He was unflinching in battle, snorling like a war horse, uh, seeking out the enemy, shaking his fist at uh, the Nazis as they would bomb London on top of the rubble piles. And yet he often was found crying like a, like a baby, like a child, uh, with the tenderness of a woman at times. And so um, that's the, the third thing that we see under this point, the shoot of the righteous branches, that he's going to be like this. He's going to possess this tremendous complex, this rare really unique blend of um, tremendous tenderness, but also power. We see his heart for the poor. It's God's heart. He has a special heart for those that are on the edges, for those that are humble, for those that are underrepresented. He's tender to them, verse four. But, so this is, the righteous branch will see those on the edges and the underrepresented and afflicted and poor as God sees them. He has God's heart as well as his eyes and ears. But also it says that what? He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, his very words will shake the ground. So there's this power um, to, to this branch. Who is this unique complex of a man who sits in the dust with the poor, yet he speaks and makes the earth tremble? And so that's what the Jews for 700 years were asking. Who is this complex of a man? And in a word, we see he, he has the heart of God. He has the eyes of God. He has the ears of God. He is God's man. He is God. He is God himself, um, whose words, whose very words shape, shake and shape creation. And I just want to say um, right now, are you poor, wretched, scared, overlooked, being beaten up or pushed down or shoved aside by someone, or do you feel that way? And I know enough of your situations in the congregation to know that some of you, that hits you right here, and you feel, you very much feel that, and in some ways you are, you are among the oppressed, or perhaps you know someone that's, that is among the oppressed, um, and we're going, in a sense, on Sunday, next Sunday, which is why I keep bringing it up, to those who are in this country and very much on the fringes, um, the oppressed, the poor, the, the disadvantaged. Um, I want you to know that God has a special heart for you. We see that here in this word. The Messiah, the branch, has a special heart for you. Um, he sent his own this branch, this shoot from the root of Jesse to carry you, to bring you close to his heart. He loves you with a special love. I want you to know that. Um, Isaiah in chapter 55 says, come everyone who thirsts. The call is to the thirsty. The call is to the thirsty. Um, he says, come, he, he, he follows that up by saying, come to the waters and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. So that is the call. So that's the shoot. Point two, though, um, from this shoot, as I've said, will come, from this stump will grow a shoot that eventually will grow into an entire new creation. So from this shoot, not even a tree, this very unimpressive thing, will come uh, a world recreator. So that's, that's what 
Isaiah 11 shows us as well. We see that in verses six through nine. Um, we see this intensification in verse six, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And then he annies up on that classic Hebrew parallelistic poetry. And the leopard shall lie, not only dwell, but lie down with the kid or the young goat. And there's more of the same, uh, the, the, the lion's gonna eat like the ox, he's gonna chew on straw. So and in, in the way that this verse six is constructed, I won't get into the details, but it's constructed much like and in a way that recalls Genesis 3.15, where Adam and Eve have just sinned and rebelled against God in the garden. He's made this perfect place for them in this perfect creation, and they've rebelled against him, and they've not feared his word. They feared the word of the snake, and they've been deceived by their eyes instead of having the eyes of God. And they bring the curse upon themselves and all creation. They're cut off from God in his presence. And so we, when we're born into this world. But in the center, in the hot core of that curse, God says to the serpent, he says, um, I will put enmity or hatred between you and the woman and between your seed or children and between her seed. Um, and you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. That is constructed very much like this here. And so even through this construction, we see and through the content that we see the unmaking of the curse here. All the things that bring pain and injury and worry and fear are gonna be done away with. And this beautiful imagery is used. The wolf um, and the lamb are gonna lie down together, the leopard and the young goat. And um, we see a, a, a rolling back, a reversal of, of the curse that came into the garden through the rebellion of our first parents. And then in verse seven, again, there's more of the same. The bear and the lion are harmless. The lion's eating straw. It's a great picture. And then, as I said in the reading in verse eight, he goes even farther and says, the nursing child, the nursing child, excuse me, shall play over the whole of the cobra. And right there in Genesis 3.15, again, we see that God speaks to the serpent who's deceived the woman. And he says, you are cursed. And so the serpent is sort of this personification of, of the thing that brings curse and of the curse. And so Isaiah scores a direct hit at the hot core of the curse here. And he says, even over the whole of the serpent itself, you're gonna have this infant that's still breastfeeding or the wean child in the next line and they're gonna play without danger. I'm gonna remove every, as far as the curse is found, this shoot that came out of this, what looked like a dead stump, seemingly unimpressive, is going to come with such power and do such a work that he's gonna remake all things. So um, verse nine, it recalls the magnetic mountain from Isaiah two that I preached on last week. They shall not destroy or uh, hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain. And we remember that, I, that Eden was on the mountain of God from Ezekiel 28. And so we, we just hear this Edenic drumbeat that this, this branch is going to, from his shoot, going to bring, a go he's gonna make of, of the earth and of creation a garden once again, a place where we can be with God in peace. Um, and it's going to be better than if it had never happened. You know when... You have a nightmare when you're a kid, and it might not be a kid. I mean, I still have, every now and again, I still have a nightmare, and it's always a relief to wake up from them. But when you're a kid and you have a nightmare, and you almost always think the dream's true, especially as a child, and, you, and then you wake up, though, and you're maybe in a cold sweat, and your sheets are all wet, and you probably run to your, run to your mom or dad's bed. But when you wake up, that moment when you wake up, and, you, and, you, and you're warm in your sheets, and you realize with a sigh, like, that was all a dream. That was not real. I thought it was. That feeling of being awake, almost the, the nightmare almost makes it sweeter. You're in your sheets and you took them for granted when you went to bed, but now you're so glad that you're safe and warm. That's, what, that's the picture that we're given here, not only in Isaiah 11, but in all of Scripture 
of what God is going to do through this righteous branch. He's going to make it through the Messiah even better than. Not only as if it had never happened, but even better because of the darkness. Like a, like a ring, Robin's sister got engaged yesterday in Dallas. And, uh, you know, we were looking at the sparkly diamond ring. And it's, you know, you, sometimes you'll put, the, the jewelers will put the gem, the diamond, up against that black or dark cloth because the dark, the blackness behind it makes the diamond pop. And, and that's, again, to use another metaphor, a picture of what we see is that God is going to use the evil, the pain, all the heartache, uh, including in the life, at the very core of the life of this coming righteous branch, to make it even better when he's finished for, for us, his children, and for all of creation. Um, the remade cosmos is going to be like that. Why? Because of the work of the righteous branch and who he is and what he's done. And it says that he will stand at the center, verse 10, of it all as a signal to the nations. And he will draw. Remember that magnetic mountain from last week? He will draw. As he's lifted up on the cross, this righteous branch, he will draw all people, all, na- all men, all women, all nations, all manner of people to himself. And what will this signal be? It says he will stand as a signal to the nations. Again, it's what Christ said, when I am lifted up, I will draw all all men to myself and all women, all manner of people. But the signal is this, it's the cross. It's the fact that he's not on the cross anymore. It's empty. He's risen. He is through death, defeated death, and and what brought death, sin, and all that separated us from the Father, death and hell. He paid the price for us on the cross to begin the process of renewal in us and in all creation and every place that we go out into. Um, he has begun to reverse the curse. But what? He has the reminder in his hands and feet. Jesus will forever remain a man. He's the God-man, fully God and fully man. And he will always, when you meet him, when you see him face to face, whether as judge or as friend, and that depends on whether you look to him by faith as your Messiah or not. When you see him, he will have the holes in his wrists, probably not hands, in his wrists and in his ankles. He will always have those as a reminder of the depths that he went to to rescue us and to break the curse and to pay the price and to bring us back to God such that all these things in verses six through nine that Isaiah is talking about, about this new creation will come to pass. It's hard for us to imagine, but we won't have to lock our doors anymore. There will, I mean, John LeCarter was held up at gunpoint. I don't know if you know that, but he's fine. Thank God he's in kids right now serving. He's in kids serving. He's not dead. He was held up at gunpoint. Um, they, they stole his car. He got it back. Um, but he, he's alive. You know, um, that won't happen anymore. The stuff, the, the, the anger and the selfishness and the pride and the self-centeredness that, that team in my heart constantly, that I'm trying to wage war against constantly, gone. The worry, the anxiety, the heartache that some of us are in the middle of and that all of us have tasted so much in this life, gone. Deep satisfaction, deep peace, lasting forever, feasting together with our maker. But he will have the holes in his hands. And as such, he will stand as a signal. Never forget, he will hold the creation together as the Messiah who went to the grave for us, was lifted up on a cross as a reminder of this is how much I love you and this is what it took. And from that laying down of his life and taking, up, taking it up again, Isaiah says there will be a new creation that will roll forth as the waves of the ocean, 
And as the waves cover the seabed, so will the glory of the Lord uh, and, and the knowledge of God cover, cover the earth and cover creation. It's this wonderful picture. Um, but also the text, before we get to the invitation and then finish, um, the text highlights not just his power, the power that issues forth from this seemingly ignorable shoot that comes from a stump, right? But also his genius. Um, if you look at verse two, it sounds a lot like Jesus' inaugural text, Isaiah 61, later in Isaiah. It starts off by saying, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And, and verse two says, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And what's gonna characterize him? What is going to characterize this man who's um, full of the Spirit of the Lord? The Spirit of the Lord is upon him. This is our Messiah. This is Israel's coming king. He's going to release her from captivity. We're expecting a coming king and a deliverer. We're expecting strength, right? We're expecting strength and power. And we get it. There's one mention of might here in in verse 2. There's one mention of might, but what is it surrounded by? Might is surrounded with the words wisdom, understanding, counsel, knowledge. Might is mentioned, but it's, again, remember, our question is in Isaiah 11, and as we read Isaiah, what is this coming king? What is this righteous branch? What is this Messiah going to be like? He is going to be mighty, but not in the kind of way that we expect. He's not going to be a tall cedar. It's going to be a shoot out of the root, out of the stump of Jesse, but he's going to be characterized by understanding and wisdom and perception. Um, Think that those are going to be his leading qualities. Think about the way in which Jesus Christ, the righteous branch that came, saved us. Think about the wisdom and the depth of insight that characterize the mechanism of your salvation and mine, the cross. Uh, in, in the most unlikely way, so unlikely that though it was prophesied about for thousands of years, almost everybody, if not everyone, missed it completely. Um, it is a salvation of deep insight that astounds us even today. It confounded the rulers of the day. It confounded Satan, who gladly saw Christ taken to the cross and didn't realize it was his own undoing. Christ was dying in your place and mine to take what we deserve. Um, it even His own disciples and family were sta- standing there weeping with mouths agape, as they should have been. It was a tragedy, but it was a tragedy that God orchestrated through the sin and evil of man to save us, taking what we deserve. And he flipped the tables on Satan, and he flipped the tables on evil, and he flipped the tables on sin, and he began the process of renewing all things by bearing all that stuff and rising to a new kind of life. And so there is a deep understanding and insight um, that characterizes this Messiah. He outsmarted Satan by using sin and evil to destroy sin and evil. He let the bee that came to sting him leave its stinger in him and die. He killed death through what? Through death. And so Paul can say, oh, death, where's your sting? It was left in Christ, and Christ rose from the dead, and now it's in the ground. Um, I, before moving on and finally to the invitation to us through this text um, and in this text, I just want to say briefly, briefly, in verse 5, um, Isaiah says, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So again, this characterizes Messiah. Um, I just want to say here, I wasn't going to put this in because you can't say everything in a sermon, but I just felt like the Lord had this in particular for maybe a person in this, in this room. But righteousness and faithfulness, why are these two nouns chosen to characterize this righteous branch, this coming king, this Messiah that we all, that we all need and long for? 
And if we don't need long, if we don't long for, we 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 should, and we need him. We need him desperately. Why righteousness and faithfulness? Well, I want to say for a lot of reasons, but one of them is that he he had what it took to in his righteousness. He was the perfect offering for sin because he didn't deserve to die. He kept the law of God perfectly. Um, and so um, we deserve to die, but he stood in our place and didn't deserve to die and was able to die for us because it wasn't, his life wasn't required. He was righteous. He kept the law. And I just feel like there are some of you here who are still striving to, to, um, to measure up in God's sight. And I just want to say, that's what Christ, this righteous branch, came for. He came not only to die in your place, but to live in your place, to keep the law of God and to obey perfectly in your stead so you can rest in him and you can look to him. And the second thing is he's characterized by faithfulness. He finished the work. He saw it through to the end. There's nothing left for you to add. He's done it all, and you get to rest in his finished work, and the fruit of your life will proceed from looking to him and resting in him and rejoicing in him. So let's move finally to the invitation um, to all of us through this beautiful word in Isaiah. Verse 10 says this. It says, the, the resting place of this righteous branch will be glorious. The resting place. As he stands as a signal to the nations, his resting place will be glorious. What is his resting place? What is his resting place? Well, yes, it's the throne. He's reigning from heaven, but he's coming down to be with us once again. And his resting place is us. It's all of us who have looked to him as our, as our savior, as the one who took our place and, and took what we deserve. It's, it's all of us who will look to him as our Messiah and savior and king and the one who took the fall in our place. He, as we look to him, he comes and lives inside of us by his Holy Spirit and he rests in us and creates in us a people of rest. Um, I have a friend here who's now part of our family, Ab- Abdul, and um, he said to me this week, it was beautiful, and he said, I'm not afraid anymore. He's with me always. And he's just been a Christian for like a month and a half, and he doesn't know Matthew 28, uh, the, the sermon, I mean, the Great Commission, where Jesus says, and lo, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. But he does have Jesus living inside of him, Jesus is resting in him, and he knows because of the spirit of the living God, this God's never going to leave me. And so he knows what is true. Um, and um, excuse me, he knows the branch who gave this rest and who is this rest. And he is making in Abdul a resting place uh, for himself and a place that will go out and spread rest wherever Abdul goes. And that's what he's doing. That's what he's doing with us. He's making us a people of rest through whom rest spreads. Um, verse nine, I mentioned it, says the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as waters cover the sea. In other words, um, it, God's glory and his knowledge is gonna be everywhere, personal, relational, intimate, saving knowledge of God because of this branch is gonna be everywhere. And again, how is this gonna happen? How is this gonna happen? It's going to happen through us. The, the branch in his presence is going to metastasize as it were over all creation. How? As, as we look to him, as he lived in our place and died in our place, as our, as our coming king who saved us, um, we get to be the very knowledge and presence of the living God with Christ, the branch living inside of us everywhere we go. 
the knowledge and the glory of God spread on, on Hillcroft, Fondren, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, at PLI and those relationships with our families, with our enemies. Um, we, we get to be um, this piece of the branch, this knowledge of the branch, of the branch uh, spread out and saturating everywhere that he places us. Let me skip a few things and just go ahead and, and close with some words from Tim Keller. No, no surprise, it's been a while since I mentioned him, so I thought I would again. Um, to kind of bring us back to thinking about PLI next week and thinking about what an opportunity that is to reach out to the nations, um, to have a heart for the poor and those on the edges and, the un- and um, those that don't have the privileges that a lot of us do. But if God has a heart for anything, and I wanted to say this last week, and I did in a certain way, but not, I didn't, I didn't um, put it bluntly enough. And I could say it again this week because Isaiah says the same thing, basically. Um, that if God has a heart for anything, it's a heart that all sorts of people and all the nations might come to know him. That's what he died for. Um, and so this is an amazing, like I said, amazing crystallized opportunity that's set up for us to go and to enter the nations and to serve them and to get to know them, that they might come to know Jesus Christ and that we might benefit in so many ways from those relationships and from loving them. These, if we miss them, oh, I just want to say this bluntly, if we miss them, we miss Jesus. That's very clear. If we miss them, we miss Jesus, and we miss what he's doing. Um, and so, and that goes for our partnerships. I want to encourage you um, just to, as, as focused as we are on life together and, and seeing one another discipled and seeing the presence of Christ in our daily lives and spread out into our neighborhoods and workplaces through parish, I want to encourage you to take a hold of getting involved in one of our partnerships, whether it's PLI or Houston Welcomes Refugees, which does similar things, um, or some of our, one of our prison ministries, or fighting trafficking through Love 146, um, or looking more into fostering or being a part of that and becoming a church that, fost- that brings in those that have been neglected and cast aside, fostering, adopting. Um, so I want to encourage you in partnerships. But um, the, the branch and God himself have a special heart for the poor, for the neglected, not just those on the street corner, those as well. But when I think poor, a lot of times I just think those that are panhandling on the street corner. Yes, them, but also immigrants and refugees, um, those on the ragged edge, not on the inner ring. Two, two words from Tim Keller here, like I said, one is short and the other is a little bit longer, but both are a, a total gut punch. Um, and then I'll close. But one is a prayer. He says, Lord, I tell myself I care about the poor, but it hasn't affected my lifestyle or relationships. Uh, And that really hit me squarely. Has it affected our lifestyle, the way that we care for the poor, or our relationships? Let it, let it, if not, if it hasn't, let it begin, let that process begin next week um, and prayerfully, prayerfully enter into that time. Proverbs, the the longer word from Keller, Proverbs 29, seven says, the righteous care, care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. And Keller comments on this. He says, the word care here translates a Hebrew term that means to search out a matter to do exhaustive research. The term for justice literally is the claims. So to be righteous, according to Proverbs, is to know the specific kinds of problems and needs, in other words, to research, that the poor face in your region, as well as their rights, needs, and opportunities. This is far more, he says, though not less, than collecting food or toys for families at holidays. Nothing against angels of light, that's wonderful, but that's one of the reasons we've chosen at least for now, to engage in something where we can have relationships and get to know folks that are in our area that are on the edges. Um, 
instead of just getting a present, dropping it off, uh, which again, that's wonderful, but that's not really what this, this is talking about here. Um, he says, so it's, it's not less than that, but it's more than collecting presents for, for the poor on holidays. And here we see that it's not only wrong to directly exploit and trample on the poor, to even simply have no concern for the poor, to just fail to pay attention to their needs is wicked, he says, according to this proverb. If you perhaps make an occasional contribution to charity, but don't give your mind and heart to furthering justice for the poor in your region and society, you are not one of the righteous. You're too concerned with your own affairs, happiness, and advancement. And then he ends with this question. Are you by definition righteous, or are you, research, are you researching ways to lift up the poor in your community? And I just want to say again, it hit here. I want this word and, and the fact that Messiah came to change that and that he has a heart for the poor and so much so that he became poor, he became ultimately impoverished. Becoming sin is as poor as you can get to, to, to bring us into his riches. Oh, that that would make an actual difference in the way that I engage in relationships and spend my life and what he's loaned me to steward until I see him face to face. Oh, that that would make more of a difference in our lives as a community. That's my prayer. It's a prayer. It's aspirational. I know that this is in line with his will, and so I, I'm looking forward to seeing that play out next week and beyond. And I see traces of that in our body, but I want to see that grow, and I want to see it grow in me. Um, and again, as I, as I just referenced obliquely, the poor is another type of person too. And in short, it's the sinner. It's, we're all sinners, but it's the one who knows his sin and is broken by it and knows that he needs a Savior. And that's the type of person Jesus came for, no matter how much money you have. We are all poor in God's eyes if we're not clothed in Christ. So I just want to say again to you, to each of you, but to some of you in particular that God is speaking to, um, he has a, he, if you are burdened by your sin, he came for you. He came for one type of person, the sinner. And I would just encourage you to flee to him. He is, he is uh, our only and, and, and sufficient resource. So he yearns to come to you and to set you free. The, the passage, as I close, it started in verse 1 with the branch. Um, it said, uh, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And he ends with the same thing. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Um, so in the same way that he goes back to the beginning, let me just finish by going back to the beginning where I was talking about that, that shoot out of the, what seemed like a dead stump in the midst of all those towering, glitzy, amazing, overwhelming trees. God is often at work in the smallest of things and in the smallest places. But and through those things and through his righteous branch, he's begun the process of the recreation of all things. And we, we get to take part in that. It's our story too. As we, as we proclaim that the signal, as we raise the signal of the branch um, who's been crucified and who's risen and who's reigning, um, in our lives, we get to proclaim that too. But I, let me just take us back to, to that tree, to the image of the tree. And I've mentioned this before, but in, in Luke, and I got this from someone else, from Andrew Wilson, a theologian and pastor in London. But in Luke, um, Luke, Luke only ever talks about the cross as, with that word, the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ that he came to die on in order to set us free, to take our place. He only ever talks about it with the word of the cross. But in the book of Acts, which Luke also wrote, which is about Jesus reigning and acting from heaven through his body on earth, the church, us. The cross 
the word cross is never used. It's referred to, but every time it's referred to, the word tree is used. What happened? Here's what happened. It's what happened. It's what we see happening in Isaiah 11. And that is that through a dead piece of wood, far worse than it, it was a piece of wood that brought death, that brought, brought crucifixion and shame and torment and torture. And it stood for all that's broken in the world. Through that dead piece of wood, Jesus, by hanging on it and finishing the work necessary to bring us back to God and to begin the process of the restoration of all things, he made it uh, a tree, a thing of life. Um, let that cross in all of its humility, in all of its love for the other, in all of its willingness to be completely, hey, completely vulnerable. Because guess what? My God did this for me and I've been set free in him. And so I just want you, I, I want to be completely open with everything that I am and have to you, friend. What's mine is yours. And you know what's mine? Jesus Christ. I want you to know him. Let this be our signal. Let this be what characterizes our lives. Let, let from this once piece of dead wood come uh, life from this tree. And it will, Jesus through this cross, through this tree, will renew all things and then he will come again. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for a patient people as I sort of stumble over a sermon. Um, thank you for this people that you've laid your life down for and taken it up again for, that you love dearly, that you've given yourself for that you've called to yourself. Um, I pray that you would just continue to move and to speak even now to us, Lord, as we come to table. Um, Holy Spirit, come, continue to work, speak through us, work on us, convict us of sin, draw us to Jesus Christ, our only hope. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.